The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a warm welcome to Scorebox. Uh, let's give you some headlines this Tuesday morning. The BOJ stands pat on rates as markets price in a 25 basis point cut from the Federal Reserve. Whilst President Trump continues his attack on the central bank, saying a small cut is not enough. Stocks across Asia edging higher as US-China trade talks resume in Shanghai. Ahead of earnings from blacklisted Chinese tech giant Huawei. The pound sinks to a 28-month low amid growing fears of a no-deal Brexit. While UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson warns the EU it's time to scrap the current agreement. What we wanted to do is to make it absolutely clear that the backstop is no good. It's dead. It's got to go. The withdrawal agreement is dead. It's got to go. Uh, but there is scope to do a new Beyond Meat shares tumble after hours on plans to sell more shares. But demand soars for its vegan products as sales more than triple in the second quarter. There was a very interesting set of comments. Yes. Good morning, Juliana. Nice to see you this week. How are you? Nice to be here, Steve. Yeah, Thank yeah. We you. know the rest of us start on a Monday. <laughs> um. <laughs> some, the rest of us had some flight troubles. I know, I know. It must have been <laughs> awful being stuck on that Italian island. Now, here I am. Uh, how are you? All right. I'm doing well, yes. Good, good, good. Well, you missed. I'm sure you've read him. But there were some very interesting comments from Ryan Ayres, uh, who's a pilot who gets planes from play A to B. You know, travel. I listened to your yeah. podcast yesterday. <laughs> okay. Well, Ryan Ayres trades at 12 times forward. Okay. And Mr. O'Leary, who is the boss, very um, ebullient boss of Ryan Ayres, was making some comments about Boeing 737 Max. He's just basically saying they've got to get their act together as well. Uh, but the good thing about Ryan Ayres shares and the reason why they trade at 12 times forward is despite the fact that there is a very, um, how can I put it, there is a huge amount of aircraft for a lot of routes in Europe and beyond as well, which creates an incredibly competitive environment. The shares trade on 12 and a half times forward because they have an ability to extract a lot of juice out of their customers called the ancillary revenues. And that's what got Ryanair out of a mess yesterday. Now, the problem for the national flag carriers like Deutsche Lufthansa, uh, whose shares trade at around about a third in terms of price earnings uh, as uh, Ryanair, they trade at 4.5 times forward, is that they struggle to get the same kind of juice out of the customers. And that is why most analysts on this stock are holders. They're not buyers. They're not sellers. They are holders. 18 holders, two buyers, three strong buyers, one seller, one strong seller. So you can see the bell curve on that. It's just literally people are waiting to see. And they're waiting for a catalyst, whether they can buy this stock. So let's have a look at today's numbers, second quarter, to see whether there is a catalyst there as well. Um, Well, the good news is they've confirmed a previous forecast. But the bad news is they continue to see the European market as challenging until at least the end of this year. They are not offering any light at the end of the tunnel. They're talking about the same issues as everyone else, and they're really laying on the line here. Overcapacities, yes, check. Competition, price-sensitive customers pressuring yields on European routes, especially in Germany and Austria. How extraordinary that is. They're not talking about Southern Europe. They're not talking about troubled areas. They're not talking actually about Brexit-related issues. They're talking about Germany and Austria, which is a extraordinary when you consider the relative strength of those economies compared with the rest of Europe. Uh, they say Eurowings is expected to see further burdens on short-haul business, some of which 
could be offset, should be offset by long haul as well. I'll just give you two numbers. Adjusted EBIT at 754 million euros. Second quarter revenues, 9.633. But I'm afraid to say, just looking at the outlook from this company itself, they are offering us nothing in the short term, nothing from the second half of the year, which will alleviate the pain they have. And that's their words, not mine. Remains challenging with overcapacities and price sensitive customers, which brings us all the way back to where I came in with Ryanair, because those price sensitive customers at Ryanair are having more juice extracted because they are better at, at doing it in advance of people getting on the plane and while they're on the plane as well. So anyway, back to you. Belated well, start for you. Not uncommon to you this week. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve, for highlighting that for our viewers. But I did listen to the podcast and I did hear you talk about Ryanair yesterday and you made the point then that one of the weak markets for Ryanair was Germany. So interesting to see that Lufthansa again is showing weak or showing weakness there. And Mr. O'Leary said that on the topic of Germany, Lufthansa was allowed to buy Air Berlin and is selling this excess capacity at below cost prices. So uh, it, it's interesting in light of that to hear uh, from Lufthansa this morning. Mm. Now, I want to bring you another set of results out of Germany, this time in the cement space from Heidelberg. They have reported that Q2 group revenue rose 1%, like for like, to uh, 4.97 billion euros. Uh, the, they said that the market dynamics weakened slightly in the quarter, but importantly, they have confirmed their outlook for 2019. They made further progress in optimizing their portfolio in the first half and are on track to meet their disposal target of 500 million euros in the fiscal 2019 year. Uh, on energy costs, they said they have seen favorable developments, uh, in particular developments in Europe, North America, Asia, especially Indonesia, will cont contribute positively uh, to the results in 2019. Now, it's, just to put the, the cement makers into the context of an, another theme we've been talking about a lot, of course, climate change, and we're going to be discussing oil a lot more later on in the show. Cement production uh, uses huge amounts of heat and energy for so the sector is really at the heart of investor calls to uh, contribute to uh, reducing the emissions and, and take action against climate change. So I think in that context, Heidelberg is an interesting stock. It's an interesting sector. For Indeed. In fact, at a very big climate panel I hosted in Davos a couple of years ago, I spoke to one of the CEOs of one of the very, very big rivals, that big arrival of Heidelberg's event. And he turned around to me and said, yeah, we have a green product but people don't want it. Do you know why? Because it's more expensive. And that, that, that was two years ago. So I'm fascinated to see whether greener products, which potentially have more costs attached to them, uh, are gaining traction for the likes of Heidelberg as well. But excellent. Right. And just uh, interesting to note that Heidelberg Cement, actually the market, quite keen on this one as well. When I talked about the brokers being on the fence for Lufthansa, uh, five strong buyers on this stock, 10 buyers, nine holders, only two sellers as well. So uh, definitely the market seeing better times ahead for this stock uh, at the moment. Anyway, fascinating. Fascinating markets once again overnight. Absolutely, Steve. Well, on Wall Street yesterday, mixed moves ahead of that all-important FOMC outcome that is due Wednesday, where markets are looking for a 25 basis point rate cut. But perhaps more importantly, more interestingly, is what happens next, what happens after this 25 basis point cut, assuming it comes. Now, coming back to the action, we did see the Nasdaq and the S&P close in negative territory. The Dow bucked the trend, ending about 0.1% higher. Sector-wise, consumer staples hit a record close yesterday. 
yesterday. Healthcare was in focus as well. We saw Pfizer agree to combine its off-patent drugs business with the generic drugs maker um, Mylon. So the healthcare sector, another big deal coming through there. It's another big week for earnings as well with uh, over 160 S&P companies reporting. We've already, of course, started to see these come through yesterday. One really interesting point I want to highlight is on the magnitude of the index moves that we've seen recently. The S&P and the Dow haven't seen a plus or minus 1% move in 35 and 29 sessions, respectively. So fairly muted moves when it comes to the magnitude. So shows how, how much uncertainty is really affecting investors right now. Perhaps we'll get some more clarity at that FOMC meeting later uh, this week that's coming up on Wednesday. Let's take a look at dollar crosses ahead of that meeting. Of course, we are seeing uh, some further weakness in sterling in the latest period. It's down now to 1.2129. So continuing lower to the tune of about 0.7%. The euro also weakening further versus the dollar just over that 111 mark. Meanwhile, uh, the yen seeing a little bit of a bid there. Uh, The dollar is down about 0.17% versus the yen. And the dollar yuan holding around that 6.88 level. Shifting gears, let's take a look at oil markets. Uh, Oil yesterday gaining in the session. We're seeing continued gains now with WTI trading about a fifth of a percentage point higher. Brent as well, about a fifth of a percentage point higher. But both are still down on the month, just to put it into context for you. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, oil moving higher, perhaps uh, in lockstep with those expectations for the FOMC meeting. Let's take a look at Asian markets overnight, where we have seen uh, green across the board here. But again, fairly muted moves. The Shanghai Composite up about uh, 0.65%. The Hang Seng up about a a third of a percentage point. And the Nikkei 225 up uh, just about a fourth of a percentage point there. We had the BOJ meeting come through uh, and uh, hold rates unchanged as expected. U.S.-China in focus. Don't forget this week with the trade top trade negotiators resuming talks in Shanghai today. So investors waiting for any headlines that we may see come out of that. Now, finally, let's take a look at European opening calls and see how see what all of this means for European markets. We're looking at modest gains for the DAX, the FTSE 100, the CAC, and the FTSE MIB today. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that opens in just a few hours' time. Another big earnings day here in Europe. We already heard from Heidelberg, already heard from Lufthansa. So we'll keep an eye on those names as the day progresses. Steve? Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, the Bank of Japan kept its policy unchanged, as Juliana was just mentioning, but said it would, quote, not hesitate to take additional easing measures if momentum towards its 2% inflation target slows. Well, it has slowed, hasn't it? Surely. Anyway, this language was not in the BOJ statement last month, apparently. Uh, The central bank pledged to guide 10-year Japanese government bond yields to near zero and maintained its short-term interest rate target at minus 0.1%. Quick look at the uh, dollar-yen. As you could just see, they're trading at 108 and a bit of change. And the yields, if you can call them yields, uh, on the 30-year paper. There you go. Let's go out and find some great yield on uh, Japanese paper. 0.36 of 1%. Wow. Uh, Elsewhere, the Federal Reserve is widely expected to lower interest rates by 25 basis points at its two-day policy meeting this week. The move would mark the central bank's first cut to uh, borrowing costs in a decade. And President Trump has called on the Fed to make more than a quarter point reduction to interest rates. He said in a tweet that a, quote, small rate cut is not enough, adding that the central bank has, quote, made all the wrong moves. Now, Steve and I are joined around the desk by Lutfi Siddiqui, adjunct professor at National University of Singapore and visiting professor in practice at LSE. Thanks for joining us this morning, sir. Uh, so let's park President Trump's uh, criticism aside for a moment. What do you think the Fed should be doing to shore up the U.S. economy? 
There is the US economy and then there's the rest of the world. And I think divergence was always something that was never going to sustain. Uh, even if there was a case for hiking to continue just for the sake of the US economy. Um, the Fed needs to loosen, the Fed's ne Fed needs to cut, and the easing cycle uh, has begun or will begin uh, probably a lot sooner than people had thought after the four hikes last year. But there's also the global economy to think about the broader context. A record number of bonds yielding, sovereign bonds yielding negative, uh, for longer and longer duration. The Japan chart that you just put up no longer stands out. Uh, and uh, so I think the path is quite clear. There needs to be a quantitative tightening has gone ahead of itself. Uh, so we will see uh, the start of an easing bias with the Fed and the rest of the world. Um, just to jump in, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, who does the Fed need to cut for? And as a premise and a section B on that question, uh, who can't get cheap credit um, at the moment that actually is credit worthy? Well, the, uh, the, the domestic economy is, isn't really going uh, gung-ho. You have uh, uh, growth decelerating. So we saw Q2 growth at 2% rather than the 3% that was expected. Do you not think 3% was an anomaly, though? 3% well, wasn't expected. The, the, uh, the, the above trend was supposed to be an escape velocity, is what people were saying at the time. Uh, there was a lot, lot assumed in the four hikes last year. So I think there is an economic reason to at least stop the hiking part of the cycle sure. that we were in. Um, but then you also have financial conditions that need to be considered. The first order impact of trade war has been more muted than people expected. That's why consumption remains strong. But the second order impact which is often heralded by weakening in investment, that may yet still be felt. Sorry, Professor, just uh, again, who can't get credit um, at stunningly low historic levels at this moment in time that is credit worthy? Right, well, it's a question of who wants credit. And but they you may- You can't force people to take credit. Well, you can't, uh, you can't force it just by cutting rates. So could you answer my first question, actually? Yes. Who can't get credit, who is credit worthy at the moment, whether it be an individual, whether it be a municipality, whether it be a government, whether it be a corporation, importantly a corporation, who can't get cheap credit at the moment? Well, the answer is no one. Uh, yeah, but who wants it? The, the thing is, the economy is a circular well, then, flow of income. Then we're, 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 we're using the wrong instrument, aren't we, sir? If, if everybody, if the answer yes. is no one can't get it, that means everyone can get it. Right. And we've seen that everyone can get it but from the corporate bond market. We've yes. seen from the high yield market, many of which is going into negative territory, let alone right. sovereign as well. So let's assume everyone, and from the consumer credit figures we saw in the US in the last month as well, yes. huge increase as well. So if everyone can get cheap credit at the moment, what yes. is the point in lowering rates even further? So you could ask, what is the point of monetary policy at this stage? I could ask that, sir. But, I will ask you, um, what is and, the point of monetary and, policy and, at this and, stage? And it's a valid point to make in that we've had a single instrument uh, a single weapon in the arsenal uh, response to the economy globally, where the fiscal and the supply side levers have not been uh, pulled. I think you're agreeing with me here, and, actually. Uh, I think we're both going down the same route, uh, aren't we? That there are other tools which would be more effective that uh, aren't being used. That's true, but a necessary condition is that the monetary policy has to be accommodative. You could argue that in, the, in, in a brinkmanship or a game theory between the monetary authorities and the rest of the policy makers, the central bank could say, look, I've done all that I could. There is no effectiveness from here on. You guys do your bit. Um, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, it's true. Others need to do more, but a necessary condition 
is looser money. But how much of this is actually for the rest of the world then, uh, rather than the U.S.? I mean, the Federal Reserve at this point looks as if it's playing central bank to the rest of the world. If you look at the U.S. economy, you yes. can very easily make the argument that it doesn't need this cut. Yes, you could, you could say that. And there is a school of thought that says the U.S. economy, all said and done, is still relatively closed. The external sector doesn't have much of an impact. But that was the thesis behind divergence. Uh, what we see is that there is always a blowback from the rest of the world, either on financial conditions or on the real economy. And at some point, the global context needs to be brought in. Um, Professor Zdeke, I'm going to have one more go at this, just from okay. a different point of view as well, because I, I, I don't think we're actually disagreeing. I think we're yes. virtually on the same path, but we're just running parallel lines. If corporations aren't using the capital, let's say corporations are part of the transmission mechanism as well as the banks to get this extra investment flowing as well. And, we, and you're absolutely right. The most recent figures were strong on the consumer, but weak on fixed asset on business investment in That's the US right. as well. The problem is they are getting that capital and the problem is they are spending that capital as well, but they're doing it on buybacks as well. And we've seen this with the trillion dollars of buybacks, which is pretty much an annual phenomenon in the US at the moment as well. Yes. So the ill, one could argue, that there is an ill-judged use of capital that is being offered to these corporations at record low rates as well. Offering them more capital at lower interest rates is only going to exacerbate the trend where that capital isn't used wisely, isn't it? Yes. So the arsenal of monetary policy, if you look at it at a global context, is now augmented with many other measures apart from just interest rates. Uh, a phrase I use is we've all become Asians now. So if you look at the way Asian central banks manage economies, it's not just the interest rate lever, there's macroprudential policies, there is um, restrictions on the property market, the extent to which you can borrow for mortgages and so on and so forth. So you're right that just having loose money and just having a large quantity of money out there uh, can create all sorts of other imbalances. One would hope that the other measures would also be taken uh, hand in hand, but a necessary condition is still probably that the uh, at the moment, in the wider context, uh, an easing bias is warranted. Okay, I, I, we're going to leave it there, but it's a great conversation. I just wonder when we write the, uh, the, 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 the I was going to say the epitaph. Well, no, we write the epitaph of Mr. Draghi. I think we will see an epitaph of the most frustrated man on the planet who yes. offered all that you are talking about there, uh, but never ever galvanised the so others to take their always, part. Monetary policy is always meant to provide air cover while the real economy mm. and the structural reforms oh, and the fiscal side are taking place. And he did slower. that. He gave them cover. And I remember his speeches from, yeah. from day one. From day one is, I'll put you cover, you carry out your part. And yes. one could argue they haven't. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Right, coming up on the show, uh, plenty more from uh, Professor Siddiqui and US and Chinese negotiators resuming face-to-face -face trade talks amid low expectations for a deal. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend.
Welcome back to Squawk Box. Hundreds of protesters in Hong Kong disrupted train services during the morning rush hour in the latest pro-democracy demonstrations to rock the Chinese territory. Activists blocked doors preventing trains from leaving stations. They also posted flyers warning of a citywide strike on August 5th. The former British colony has seen several weeks of social unrest amid a backlash against the Hong Kong government and its close ties to Beijing. U.S. and Chinese negotiators holding their first high-level face-to-face talks today since President Trump and President Xi agreed a trade truce last month. The Vice Premier Li He welcomes U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer to Shanghai for face-to-face discussions. Delighted to say we still have uh, Lutfei Siddiqui, who is the adjunct professor at National University of Singapore and visiting professor in practice at the LSE with us. So um, how do you see these trade talks going and is it going to act as a global panacea to growth concerns? Um, so understandably, expectations are low around these talks. If you remember how they've come about, uh, the... Um, it was after the G20 meeting, the summit between Presidents Trump and Xi Jinping in Tokyo, they agreed to have these talks. It echoes exactly what happened last year after the Buenos Aires G20 meeting, and they agreed to talk. And we got carried away, and we expected that the threatened ratcheting up of tariffs from 10 to 25 percent was not going to materialize. And then those talks have resulted in failure. So that's, it's understandable that uh, expectations are muted around uh, this one. Also, uh, economic circumstances haven't changed dramatically uh, for either side in either direction. So economic conditions are neither muted enough uh, uh, nor positive enough for changing the, the negotiating calculus for either sides. So if you think of this as a, as a heavyweight boxing match, there are nips and, and, and jabs and cuts, but no knockdowns and no knockouts. So both sides have staying power to continue going for a bit longer. Uh, so that's what the base case is. I happen to think that um, we shouldn't rule out the possibility of there being a conciliatory note tone coming out of this, partly because expectations are so low, but also because I think uh, we just might, that, that might come up. In terms of the the impetus for a, a change in sort of tactic, uh, I understand Huawei is obviously one of the key features here um, of of the negotiations, and I understand there's a sense in Beijing that the Trump administration. Uh, ease their stance on Huawei, not because they wanted to actually offer a carrot to China, but because of the powerful U.S. tech uh, lobbying them to do so, given how much, uh, how important the Huawei supply chain is to those uh, those companies. So when I think about the motivation for President Trump and the U.S. side, how important is it that businesses have been speaking up since this has gone on to try to get him to uh, certainly soften his stance and retain that softness when it comes to Huawei and the technology side of things? Well, it's one factor, but it's highly complex. And this is, this is not just a trade war, as you know better than me. You know, we're talking about uh, Cold War, currency war, tech war, trade war, all of those. Um, I don't expect resolution of this uh, complex conflict to happen, the strategic rivalry, to happen in the near term. It's multi-dimensional, it's multi-year. But if you just distill it down to the current round of trade spat, if the focus is how do you deal with the trade deficit, then I think it's possible for there to be a transitory truce on that front. But unfortunately, I think the uh, overall context 
of geopolitical brinkmanship is likely to continue for a long time now. Um, I'm just looking at a, at a couple of charts, um, historic charts of Chinese GDP growth as well. And of course, we know that we have over a long period of time, a big decline. For instance, I'm, I'm looking now at 2010, where there was north of 12% handle now. Yes. Long before there was a trade war, we were seeing, uh, as you would get with a, a country going from developing to developed, or from frontier to developing to developed, uh, a slowdown in that growth rate. Of course, it's a natural thing. It's happened historically everywhere. If we were to take away the trade war, China will still be continuing to decline on a growth rate as well. Is this dangerous for the country, given the socio-demographic issues that the country is facing? Yes, so part of it is also the base effect. So a growth of 6% on 13 trillion is still larger than a growth of 3% on 19 trillion. So in terms of the dollar contribution to global GDP, China still contributes more than the US does. Um, so it's like I, I described it um, uh, before as like the movie Speed, you know, that Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock movie mm -hmm. where the bus needs to hurtle at a certain speed uh, in order to avoid it being blown up. And while it's, it's, it's moving, someone needs to go underneath and switch engines <laughs> from <laughs> fixed asset investments. And they, need, they need a bit of a hill to give them momentum, perhaps. Uh, without letting the speed go down. So now there are social consequences if growth goes below a certain level, but we're nowhere there, there yet. My band is 6% growth yep. is a low barrier, and 7 in the dollar CNY okay. exchange rate. The 6-7 band is the, is the Interesting you should. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.